Hello, Jeremy. <laughs> hey. hey, Raph. How are, how are you feeling? It's the, it's, it's, it's the end I'm of the weekend. I'm actually feeling pretty you... good, I have to say. Yeah. Yeah? You got to chill, chill well, vibes. The, the, the NFT mean, thing kind of came back. I was like, oh, the, the trajectory was kind of downward. And then with all these fluctuations and gas prices were high and people were confused. And now it feels like the energy is back. And mm. I've been seeing a lot of cool new NFTs. And uh, it, it feels, I think, we'll have to see. But I have a vested interest for this to be around for a few decades so that'd be fun and before it felt like okay it was only two month fad and that's it so yeah mm, i see usually the summer is actually a quiet period for artists yeah so, so imagine uh, what the what not, the rest not of the according year could to your be. prediction we got it yeah we, well we got a lot of burning down to do so we got to burn down a lot of old institutions make sure they never come back no we're offering alternatives <laughs> i'm just kidding I'm yeah yeah, kidding, yeah. We, we can exist in um, <laughs> I'll tell you what, though, like you, we did, you know, you, yeah, I, guess, I didn't ask you, what, what did you do with your weekend? Like, cause you, you did, we didn't record on, you know, usually you'll say, okay. hey, or I will, like, you know, I, you know, yeah, did yeah, you go yeah, out? Yeah, did yeah. you go for a hike? Uh, well, do? yesterday we went to a birthday party in the park with a few friends. And mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And it was, it was your birthday oh, yeah. last week. Well, that was so fun. There was uh, a lot of people, my friends in the park. This was Christina's friends, and most of them we didn't know. So we didn't stay around for that long. Mm. And today we looked at an apartment in Brooklyn, sort of was an open house and we were curious and then had lunch. We're, we're, oh. The plan is like for a year or something to do an open house every two weeks or something and check out different neighborhoods and then have lunch in the neighborhood and kind of get a feel of what's out there. Because I, I, I'm not so familiar yeah, with Brooklyn I mean, and yeah. then see what's going on. That's true. You kind of stick to your little neighborhood. You don't. Well, often we have neighbor. good soba noodles, and that's all I want. <laughs> that's yeah. true. It would be ideal if you could just buy the place you're yeah. in or something. Well, or, I know oh, you're not talking. Yeah, about but I, I, I've been looking, of course, on the real estate websites, and the offerings in the Lower East Side feel work at the far end, so it's not so busy. But a lot of it, you feel like you're living in a party street, and it's just loud weekend stuff. And mm-hmm. so I love this neighborhood, but I yeah. like that we're at the edge. Yeah, it's a little boring, this kind of stuff, but... No, no, I was on the phone with a friend in New York, and he was on, like, his rooftop patio or something in his building, and it was, like, there was, like, a par- like a pool party going on, but he was like, no, no, it's just, like, everyone's out, and they're talking, and they're drinking. People are happy to be alive, yeah. <laughs> I think um, people are happy to be alive. Yeah, I, I was just about to say, like, I went out for... The- I did the brunch thing today, and, like, I... I, I- I drank mm. in the middle of the day, <laughs> like, which it was a YOLO thing yeah. for me to do because I'm I, I don't drink very often. Right. But um, and you're double reason, vaccinated now. I also, re- yeah, yeah. But also, yeah, and like all the patios opened this weekend, so it was Toronto's big oh, cool. reopening. Are people and, still uh, masking outside? Fifteen percent capacity. Not really. Everyone in New York is still wearing a mask outside, and, and I thought the CDC said it's okay, but uh, people are holding on to the masks. I would say it's like mm, not fifty fifty because enough well, here's people now. At least, Canada has at least the highest in my neighborhood is ninety percent at least. No, no, it's just folks who wear the mask outside. Yeah. Oh. And it's still mandatory. Well, in New York stores. really is probably traumatized more than anywhere yeah, else too. Yeah, though, yeah, right? yeah. And and uh, I'm a firm believer. That it was always the custom in Japan that if you have a cold or you're coughing, you should wear a mask. It's obviously, you're like. Mm-hmm. projecting your 
sickness into the world, so you should cover yourself. That makes sense to me. Yeah, yeah but I was going to... It does make sense. The other thing I was going to note is that socializing is pretty yeah. exhausting. I forgot. It's like a muscle. Like I haven't There's been, this joke like, someone was saying, like, <laughs> oh, lockdown is over. Now we're going to have to come up with an excuse to all the people who said, let's get together after the pandemic. <laughs> Well, it's like a muscle. I know I can rebuild it, but I, you know, no, I, did, I know what I did, you mean. Like breakfast yesterday with someone, and it's and not only that. And... It's like a lot of my friends moved away to Long Island or upstate, and then they're like, "Come visit," but then it's like a three-day commitment. So it's not like just having dinner. It's like a seventy-two-hour commitment. It's a lot of talking. Oh my uh, goodness! Oh no! Yeah, that's, that's why bad, I, I that's like cities because you can effect. just have lunch and then be gone. And uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm a two-hour well, we, max. We do this every week, the yeah. one hour a week. It's a, that's a good amount. I feel like we, we get... Good. It's good. Yeah. It's just enough. <laughs> so, I know what you mean. Hey, so we have a question, but we also have an ad. I wonder if we, uh, we, we want to bring ads back, or at least we don't want to shut the mm-hmm. door on the idea that we're here to help. And so should we yeah, start with it. the ad? I wonder. It's not, it's not scripted. Can we just take turns on um, the sentences? Do you have it? Yeah, yeah, do you have it open? I'll get started. We're not at all well, we're not well organized here. Okay, you do first sentence, I'll do Advertisement. Moving to music is creative expression, no matter if you consider yourself a dancer or not. Uh, with the experimental iPhone app, a fine-tuning, is it? A, fi- a fine-tuning, the music now actually responds to your movements. Pick one of three dynamic compositions, lean your phone to the wall, and interact with the music. A fine-tuning is not a game and not an instrument, and there are no rules to Only follow. goal is to create a new invisible connection of sound and body movement. The app is completely free, so check it out on affinitytuning.com. That is A-F-F-I-N-E-T-U-N-I-N-G.com. Yeah, we'll put it in the show notes. Um, do you think no, I was pronouncing I that right? I think it's a fine tune. Or is it a fiend? Yeah. What, you, said said tuning. Tuning, you said affinitytuning.com. No, I didn't. Well, I we just recorded it. I'll check it. But I'm pretty sure that's what you <laughs> check said. Check the yeah. All right. Well, if we got anything wrong, apologies. We're not professional. Definitely not. <laughs> yeah, yeah if the definition you. of a professional is that you get paid to do something, then we're not professional podcasters. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You can pay me to pronounce it correctly. Just kidding. Uh, thanks for sending that in, Mark uh, yeah. Andre Wiseman. Uh, or probably just... Uh, uh, butchered something. Wibazon. I, <laughs> I apologize. Yeah. Yeah, Wibazon. You said okay. Wiseband. What did I say? Yeah. Wiseband? <laughs> Heisenberg. <laughs> Just totally yeah. ruining everything. This is what happens like if it's a Sunday yeah. night and we record. Sorry, guys. I'm sorry. Jeremy needs his go-go juice. Yeah, I need my... I'm drinking like apple cider mm. tea right now. Well, that's apple good for the voice. Tea. Yeah. Ooh. Put a little shot so, of whiskey in there. We had a... <laughs> I have no segue into from the ad into the question, but we did have a, a listener did. question from as Eric well. A- Aberg, Aberg from Stockholm. <laughs> so let's have a listen. Hello, good point. My name is Erik Åberg. I'm a PhD student in the arts in Stockholm, Sweden. And my question is regarding history. I'll specify three different aspects. So number one, your own history. Number two, the history of the field that you see yourself active in. And number three, history in general. I'm interested to hear a bit about your immediate intuitions when it comes to these, how often you think about them, 
and what consequences it has had or might have on what you do. Thanks for the podcast. Well, thank you, Eric, for the question. And uh, I want to compliment Eric on his skill in speaking English because he sounds more eloquent than most native speakers. Yeah, also, he seems to have like a professional Yeah, 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 yeah. shout like. out to... But it, it, I've, I've found that a lot of Scandinavians, especially Swedes, speak English better than most Americans or Brits or Canadians and less yeah. use of the word like or literally or that kind of stuff. But mm-hmm. but then the, the Z, they mm-hmm. always pronounce wrong. They say uh, amazing. <laughs> that's always the telltale. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's interesting. Yeah, there's always like something. And I think the W, they have I mean, I think yeah. Canadians think Americans speak the worst English and probably the British think Canadians speak, you know, worse English than them. There's a there's like a yeah, yeah, hierarchy. Yeah. The, it's the theory that the English in the colonies, so Canada and the US, is an older form. They held on to it more and that the Brits evolved yeah. more, but I guess we don't have recordings from the 1700s, so it's hard to know. Yeah. I don't know. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> <laughs> that was very un-Canadian of you. <laughs> I know exactly. It's just trying to yeah. um, So this question, though, yeah. history. Um, actually, you were just trying to connect some dots there on history. Um, but I think it's an interesting question. So personal history versus sort of like where one positions oneself yeah. in history in general relative one to One of the things domain. I've noticed a lot with art history is that it's used as a form of branding. And that a lot mm. of people, to sound important, they're like, yeah, I was struggling with Picasso and I was, you know, I was <laughs> wrestling with Cusper David Friedrich and, uh, you know, I was I was toiling with Leonardo. And like yeah. you, name a, you name a bunch of names and people are like, oh, this is a serious artist. He or she mm. sees himself in, in the big trajectory and not just in the local. Mm. I think that you have to refer to philosophy to really Yeah, yeah, yeah. Big, and just like big tons big of name dropping. Like, and like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Latour yeah. says, or yeah, Foucault yeah, yeah. once. Exactly. Yeah. No one um, says, like, I was struggling with I Bob Ross. I will say, <laughs> I did go through that period, uh, age 16 did, yeah. to 17. Did you go to the but, Bob Ross school? <laughs> <Just kidding>. <laughs> <laughs> no. no, but I think I remember, like, you know, laughing about Bob Ross when I was a teenager. And then later, as an artist, I did actually make works inspired How by Bob Ross. How hard is it? It's pretty Yeah. to do Bob Ross. Well, I did a digital version, like where I would do these oh. performance paintings. Like I would paint oh, a story, cool. but I, I created my did own you wear a wig? painting software. Like, no, okay. I just was myself. I mean, I am a. Wi- I'm a I, I know, but hair. it's not a, a pro. <laughs> yeah, but it was the beginning of the famous new media artist era. But it was the black turtleneck era, not but, the white turtleneck. Yeah, I mean um, that's an interesting example where if you look at art history, there's been incredible geniuses doing landscape painting and then Bob Ross comes along for a new audience that is not aware of that history and they're amazed with his techniques Mm -hmm. but then if you really go back and study all the masterpieces of the last uh, 500 years you're not so impressed with Bob Mm -hmm. Ross but Bob Ross is a hack yeah but is it it, it's funny like but what what is he really doing though? Is he painting or is he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's definitely making people happy. That's his job. <laughs> yeah. Picturing this question, I do think like so in terms of like positioning myself in history, just to start things off, I always 
refer to the same history over and over and over again. I always refer to Fluxus as the beginning point, and then I retell history. And I often tell people because like when I give artist talks, I, I always say I'm going to ground this in history, but I'm going to I'm actually going to bend the truth a lot because art history is really kind of the most dubiously retold legends. You know, it's like it's been retold so many ways yeah. and different. Yeah, it's there's legends, mythology. And so I'm just, I'm going to give you my version of history because it suits my practice. And I'm always really yeah. transparent about that. This but is it, what makes sense. What to I me. do like about legends is that they, the fact that they don't have to be true. But I'm very intrigued with the methods and the lifestyles of artists and how they got to their point. And that might be a construction. Yeah. That might be false. But th- there are anecdotes like Van Gogh made 1,200 paintings in 10 years. Which is true. Like you can count the yeah. paintings. That that's uh, undisputable, and you could carbon date them or whatever. Gossip but sixty thousand. Yeah, but and, and then Vermeer <laughs> only made thirty five. So, th- to me, mm-hmm. art is a sort of uh, recording of people with very deliberate and intense work practices. Like the same way a scientist can be very deliberate and intense and and. Uh, and so, to mm. me, art history—the the stories around the works themselves—you could you could just study art history and go through Google image search and just look at paintings. But I do find it interesting to know the connections between artists and how they got to a certain point. And well, there's a historic precedent for that. I, to make it meta for a second, but like the you know the idea of apprenticeship was about passing on previous history through craft, right? Um, and even the same imagery sometimes, right? Like if you look at the symbols and traditions of, unfortunately, like religious painting is not like those are not symbols and symbols and traditions I'm always supportive of. But in a lot of cases, you know, there there's different, you know, yeah, there are those do those you, things were passed do on you, from generation when you to see generation. Old things that seem unethical now, can you not put that in its time and appreciate it for the time it was in? Mm, yeah, kind of. <laughs> it's tough. It's tough. It's really hard at but, times. But, for me. but, but because uh, you know, I think what I mean is, like, uh, there's the example. I'm not going to pull out like Adolf Hitler's paintings and celebrate them anytime soon. But I mean, he no, was a good but in a, let, let me guess, give you an example. Yeah. The, uh, Beethoven has mm-hmm. the Ode to Joy. Uh, it's a famous uplifting composition. And I saw this in a Zizek film where he analyzes ideology. So he made this composition, and it was about the seasons and nature and a celebration of, of birth and spring, I think. And then it's been used by every ideology, from Nazis to socialists. Mao used it. The Republicans in the U.S. used it. Yeah. They use it for every ideology. And then is that work tainted because a lot of bad people listen to it, or is it an open-ended... No, I think it's a good point, which is like yeah, it's history. Exactly. I'm reminded of like I, I went to the Ukraine uh, pretty early in my career for residency, and you know I, I'm Ukrainian, and the Russians erased like part of our history in terms of a genocide. Like there was a famine that was imposed on the Ukrainians, right? And so Ukrainians hate the Russians. But I, in this small town in the Ukraine, there were like all these Stalinist era statues, like like statues of Stalin um, and Lenin and stuff. And I was like, well, and specifically Stalin was like, the, you know, the worst, right? So, you know, well, they were both bad, but like, there were statues of them up. And I asked like, hey, why, why do you have these up? And, you know, it's a similar um, 
debate that's going on now, like even in Toronto, we just tore down some statues of someone that was involved in, in killing indigenous children, which is crazy. And that was celebrated. And there's a school named after them. But like, you know, in Ukraine, they're like, we don't want to pull these statues down. And there is a graveyard of these statues. So they, it's not, it was just like, they weren't all torn down. But some people shared with me, like, we want to be remember, we want to be, we don't want to forget, you know, what we survived. And so I think it's complicated. Yeah, I guess. And, um, but I but tell one that thing, story because it's one like solution could to me. be you want to preserve them to never forget what happened, but you don't have to have them on every public square. So you could, you don't have to explode them. You yeah. could put them in an archive and you could go look at them if you want to. But well, let me put it this way they weren't taking care of it. It was uh, like they were weeds. That's kind of cool, though. Stuff like that. Yeah. You know, like, but I, I, mm-hmm. one of the things, for example, I'm interested in the history of abstraction, and there's this idea that at the beginning of the 20th century, Western painters invented abstraction. But of course, there's been mm-hmm. all kinds of art histories, with oh, yeah. all kinds of patterns that then... That's a fa- yeah, you're right. That it's are offensive. not considered part of uh, autonomous <laughs> yeah. fine art, art for art's sake, but then they were made for religious rituals or they were made for uh, useful objects in everyday life or they were made as textile designs to keep you warm in the winter. And in the classic view of Western art history, anything that's useful is decoration. So then you get into this yeah, in the, to even, this hierarchy no, of, of fine art use. and decorative arts and all that stuff. But if if you would ask a space alien and you would put a tapestry next to a Mondrian, they're like, yeah, these are related. They're both dealing with geometry. And I think we're coming to terms with that. So I think art history, like there's been moments where people are like, ceramics can't be art. Like there was just an iron curtain. And now people are like, well, actually, why not? So I, I, I think yeah. uh, there's been a lot of opening up of art history. I think it was more closed before. Yeah, I mean, here in Canada, the example would be like in, like indigenous art, but specifically like um, the graphic style of like um, the yeah. West Coast. Yeah, it's that art, similar to the, the oldest. indigenous art of the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's very, yeah, very graphic. Like, you know. It's funny too, because like my father is a graphic designer. He like yeah, yeah, covets yeah. this stuff, and in a way, I'm always. But that's a what I mean. Like, like we're like aren't. look at Stuart yeah. Davis or someone like that. It's like, oh, there's such an inventor. But then you see, mm-hmm. and one of the things I just noticed of of art history is that end of the day, we we have basic human emotions and we have basic motor skills, and they always those same intentions come out in different ways. So, I. Th- whatever the context, like you put a human in a certain context and a certain thing will come out. And we try to mm-hmm. think of, of uh, Western art history as a progression of inventions and that we get further, closer to the truth or whatever. But I've seen cave paintings in a, in a documentary about cave paintings that were just like a Mondrian, this, a, a rectangle divided into nine rectangles in different colors. And that was 30,000 mm-hmm. years old. But... What was really interesting to me is that art historians struggled. There, there, there are caves that are filled with dots. So they're just like a Yayoi Kusama installation. And then they struggled. Mm. Is this a primitive being before humans that was just slapping dots on the wall and didn't have the intention of making art? And then you get to these really weird definitions. It's like, is this an abstract art piece or is this a lunatic who just yeah. spread paint all over the cave? And so there's, a, the, to me, art is incredibly 
art history is incredibly inspiring, but also very arrogant. It, 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 by nature, it excludes. No, but that's, I think that's my yeah. original point. My original point is that art history is a story. I don't think I think you could take the the his part out of it. <laughs> it's just a story, and it's not really really even very close to the truth. Like one of yeah, my favorite. Yeah, it's funny when you uh, see this, that the, I, the resources. There's so little that's known. They're like we think Caravaggio yeah, like was in this story, town at this time, uh, but we're not sure. Yeah, but even in recent history, like I often tell this Nam June Pike story of him inventing video art and going to a department store it's buying a, a video story. camera recording the you know rec- getting stuck in traffic because the pope's there recording the pope then showing that at a gallery in soho um a professor of mine debunked the timeline and almost all the facts Dali is supposed story. to be the first video artist um well you know he, he like, did a lecture regardless i think he couldn't be somewhere so he he taped it he did a performance in a studio where he had pigs walking over a blank canvas saying this is the only objective abstraction possible so he had pigs walking in mm. paint and then walking on a canvas and this was all recorded with video way before Namjoon Pike because that was the tool he had but then you could argue is that documentation or is it art and that, that kind of boring was he using like um was he using like commercial gear or non- I'm not, not sure but he was gear, very right? early with a lot of stuff like he was very early painting movie stars and, and yeah. the coke bottle he he was doing that way before Warhol so no but you're probably right but he 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 was more established so he could have cuz prior to the Sony Portapack coming out um in the late 60s the a video camera was yeah. like 40 grand but like, maybe he borrowed only one a news know? company could afford him but mm-hmm. but this this That's this true. idea it, of being yeah. the first with someone, which I think the art world has been obsessed with for a century. Yeah, yeah, first. and it, it's it's sometimes false, and it's also kind of boring. Like, oh, who cares? You did the first VR piece. Is it a good piece? That's a more interesting question. Well, people yeah. don't know what yeah. good is. Like you know, I often you talk about McLuhan on the podcast. And I kind of get sick of repeating it, but like. You know, we you know we march backward into the future, so we're always looking at the future in a rearview mirror. We use history to contextualize what comes next because we're we're very bad at at new. We're you know even though we love new, we can't really make sense of it, and so we try and refer back backward yeah. to make sense of the new thing. Um, for me, for me, uh, the the main thing what you're saying is very hard to invent new stuff, but there are new contexts. So the internet was a new context. Mm-hmm. Uh, code as a material is a new context. The browser is a new context. Uh, the, the screen has different colors than paint does. Uh, there are new kinds mm-hmm. of ways to show work, the new kind of ways to display work, and then you start to respond to all those things. At least for me, I think for you mm-hmm. maybe more even recording software and the ways to portray yourself. But, yeah, you well, know, like... Got, yeah. 10,000 million people have made self-portraits, but you saw, like, oh, there's a, a way of making a self-portrait with living software. And, uh, yeah. As yeah. an example. But, but I, I, I think, think technology also, um, opened a lot of windows for experiments that, at least, maybe not new, but seem fresh. No, I agree. <clears throat> and when, you, when I was young, it seemed easier, and I wanted to... There's a psychological principle, I'm not sure... If, if we've talked about this before, but people are, um, you know, nostalgia is very powerful. So people are much, um, like, they're much unhappier with losing than they are with the opportunity to gain. Word. So they protect against yeah. loss. So, you know, but for example, like, 
to to make up the psychological difference of losing a dollar, people need to need the opportunity mm-hmm. to gain two dollars. So it's twice as hard yeah, to think yeah. of the future than it is but, and, to protect and the one past. One of the things I find interesting is if you make an exhibition of art history of something that's canonized, people don't use the word nostalgia. So if if you do a <laughs> let's say you do a retrospective of video art from the sixties, no one says it's nostalgic. It's historical. There's a different mm-hmm. word for it. It's not nostalgic, it's historical. So yeah. even though we're fetishizing the artifacts of the past and the way those cameras were crude and gave a certain dreaminess to the picture or whatever, it's old-fashioned. It's a, but if you do, let's say, an exhibition of stuffed animals from the 60s, then you talk about nostalgia. It's like, oh, my grandfather had that in his bedroom, blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah. So there's there's that difference between high culture and low culture and I really felt it when I made an exhibition about the history of screensavers so mm. you know if, if you would do a, a survey of paintings from the 90s and, and maybe late 80s and you had Julian Schnabel and whatever no one would say this is a nostalgic show but when I yeah no one says oh this is nostalgic and then you do a show of screensavers and it's so much about the memory of being there because you grew up with those things and they're like, oh, I remember figuring out the computer and this would come on and I would look at it and it would calm me down. Or So that maybe mm-hmm. that's where the, the, the role it plays in people's lives. Either the difference between historic and nostalgic. <clears throat> Most people aren't very good studies of art history, but everyone has had like a pop cultural experience. I think one of the arguments that I heard recently in, in dialogue with um, with someone that I'm, I'm doing a panel with is they were saying it's really weird how some forms of art consider themselves hostile to uh, history and progress like and I use the term progress as just like change you know in in future forward change or opportunity or innovation and specifically like opera dance the symphony they consider themselves something that should be protected and preserved so they actually consider the art form itself historic and that their job is almost like the museum to express that work as it was originally recorded. Um, and also, uh, you know, regardless of audience attention. So um, even the format, like, you know, we will sell tickets and we'll be in this type of venue. Like everything is preserved exactly as it was or or as close to it as they is possible. And I thought that was very interesting because like, as artists, we're, you know, we, like, for example, no one's asking me to go out and do, like, Chris Burden's shoot performance exactly as it was. Like, I, and I don't feel the responsibility to do that, right? I would include a reference, though, here or there, and I think you would, too, no, no, no. in your work as, like, a yeah. nod. But the to, first thing I want to reply yeah. is that the, the Western art model is all based on the work itself is a permanent record. And music doesn't have that, especially mm. music that was made before recordings. There is no permanent record, so it's a, it's That's a true. it's an oral it's tradition or whatever you call yeah. it. it. It's somehow written yeah. down, but it's not really written down. So you really want to find the intention of the maker. And That's and true. painting oh, is the best example well. where it's yeah. like oh, you can actually see the movement of the painter at this moment in time, and it's frozen forever. And it's a very mm-hmm. Western th- idea of like make a work that's permanent it, the work itself is a permanent archive there's no external archive and then it, the this movie the wheel wheels of time where Werner Herzog films everything around a mandala sand painting of I think Buddhist priests priests 
and they spend a month making this work and then at the end of it they just blow it away because that's part of the philosophy that things are temporary mm. and you can let go and um, but what was interesting to me is filming the work it looked so fresh it the 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 graphic content of it itself but also the colors and the whole experience it was very lively and very fun and joyous and uh, rhythmic mm. and it was kind of geometric but also figurative and playful and it was it felt much more of its time than when you look at a, a masterpiece of western art of three four hundred years ago and it, i you know i appreciate uh, all, the, all the old painters but yeah. it feels from a different so, era and when when you see the sand painting in that it feels like it could be in a video like really they're like they look like pixelated video game characters mm -hmm. and the colors are super bright and there's no uh, decay of material so a lot of paintings w ha must have looked a lot fresher but the all the varnish has turned brown so that's the way we see art history through this sort of sepia oh, right, filter that's the classic example of the greek sculptures which were painted they were never yeah. white you yeah. know marble the marble was painted colors um in it but it, that's my original point which is like sometimes the history is the as an imposition of power for few upon but, future generations yeah. like it's often but, but when you when yeah. you have a history where the objects are not fixed and they're temporary just like with music mm -hmm. there's a, there's no need to reinvent every time you execute the work it's fine to reinterpret or re uh, perform an older piece and it's, it, and that could make mm -hmm. it fresher because you're making it with new eyes yeah no i'm 100% with you but the danger is that you might be propagating tradition you know, um yeah you know a legacy you know yeah no, or power like the the classic example that i use is like um you know it's the john berger yeah, kind of ways yeah. of seeing model but like you know the women and specifically white women that came from georgia the caucasus in europe what were called the caucasus ended up you know being labeled caucasians and they were like the best models they're actually the best prostitutes and then those prostitutes became the best models for paintings that became that, the beauty standard those that those paintings became representative yeah. beauty yeah and then it's like oh white women are beautiful right and then that was used to like actually you know suppress or repress well, an entire th you know, there are entire... different ways you could it's it's such a grab and i think you can interpret history and all the things that went wrong or all the things one of the yeah. No, no, I think yeah, that was yeah. just an interesting one history, of the, right? Like, the things that stuck with me is my drawing teacher in high school said he went to study art. He went to study general history after high school. He had to pick a topic. So he went to college and studied history. And he's like, this is just a timeline of terrible things. It's just war after war, mm -hmm. conquest, colonization. It's just, if you go there, it's very depressing. It's just any change happens through force and violence. And human, humanity is horrible. And then he switched to art history, and he said, this is a much more inspiring way of going through time than just listing Napoleon and Genghis Khan and Hitler. Uh, and instead, yeah. whatever problems there are with art, it does seem not as problematic as genocide. And uh, You know what I mean? Like, I, I think sometimes we are a little bit too hard on things that are actually have good intentions. Yeah, I mean, I think it's all in there in a lot of the art history, but there's a lot missing too. Yeah. To your point, like the what you just described, which is the timeline of wars, like yeah, omits like ninety nine point nine percent of human yeah, life like uh, right? baking like, bread and uh, yeah, yeah, 
Yeah, I'm reminded like the the first films. Yeah, yeah, there are a lot of films of like World War One or like you know whatever wars were going on when film was invented. But there are also like some of the earliest films are like you know people experimenting with light or like the city street in yeah. the middle of the day. Right? There's yeah. a lot of just slice yeah, but, of life. But so. I I really uh, that just stuck with me that you can you can view it at the history of mankind over the last thirty thousand years through many different lenses, and one of them is mm-hmm. uh, visual experiments. That's basically, for me, what art history is. It's basically the R&D department of society that is funded. And, you know, the R&D department, the visual R&D department of society, what I mean is, let's give like 1% of the population some resources to mess around, and we'll figure out what it means. And at different times, it was the church that supports that, or the state, or some dictator, and... You can always find problems with where the money came from, but end of the day, it's important that there's always a visual R&D department, and it's not their fault where the money came from. So I, th- yeah. I th- really yeah. am a firm, if I have any political agenda, it's just I, I believe in visual experimentation, and I'm sure sometimes the resources were problematic, and sometimes they were more fair, but end of the day, it's, it's very important for each culture to experiment visually. Well, maybe that's where the, you know, the other part of the question that was asked was about like personal history versus like, you know, art history. And, you know, you can, you can kind of ignore the art historical context to up until a certain point. It's kind of hard because it's drilled into you early in your, your education. But in theory, you should be able to create within your own practice some relative history. Like, I started here, now I'm here. Well, that, I think I'm yeah, but that's thing. almost like uh, developing software and then building over time, and it's evolutionary. So you make one project, and then it mm-hmm. mutates, and it mutates, and there's different branches of the tree, and you end up with a body of work where you're like, well, this is my performance side of my work, and this is my poetry side of my work, and this is, you know, and you make one poem, and then the next one is a little bit different, and the next one is a little bit different, and... Uh, Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I talk. I think I've talked to quite a few, like done quite a few studio visits. You know, when you're first starting, I think we've talked about this on the podcast before. Like each gesture seems like, and I can remember this when I was a young artist. It was like, this is going to be my historic yeah, yeah, yeah. moment. This, this is my best work. I'll never top moment. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because you have so little history to refer to. Every act or everything you make, you feel. But like it is, is true for some artists. There Over time, are certain artists you know, that. Similar to music, like they're one-hit wonders. They just did one thing, and yeah, yeah. yeah. But the truth is, as your career goes on, you're like, yeah, it doesn't, no. it doesn't really matter. Like, I but there is there's a certain the type of musician again. where, like, the Stones, they have to play Satisfaction at the concert, whether they feel like it or not. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it is interesting that so many. Um, breakthroughs happen early in people's it's careers. It's because they don't have a lot of Personal. obligations. That's my theory. No history, though, as well. Like, less knowledge yeah, yeah, yeah. Of, of history, like, less relative history. Like, it's just the just freedom to, yeah. to experiment Here's another and thing things. I want to throw at you. But at the, like, yeah. Well, I was just going to say, like, there's the, uh, it's the gift of naivety. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's, it's it was so, the opposite like, for me. It was growing up in the Netherlands, it's a country that had a lot of money at a certain moment in time. And uh, mm-hmm. this is a bit of a tangent, but there's a saying, art goes where money flows. 
And I'm not sure who said it. Mm-hmm. It sounds like a Picasso statement. I don't know who, but we always remember the art of the Egyptians and of the Greek and of the Romans. We always remember whoever was in power. They preserved the art, so that's what's remembered. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. No, I think and so in the true. Netherlands, it was in the 1600s that they had a lot of resources and were colonizing the world, so they had enough money for the, what I was referring to as the R&D department. Like other countries don't have money mm-hmm. for the R&D department. So they had Rembrandt and other people. And so you grow up with these yeah. master painters that you can see for free at any time in, in a huge collection of Van Gogh and Rembrandt and Franz Hals and anyone. It's just, just masterpiece after masterpiece. And then it's like, okay, now you try. And it's very <laughs> stifling. So you're like, I can't paint. What the fuck am I going to do that they didn't do? And going to the U.S. has been very freeing that they're not so focused on history and that they're like, yeah, Mondrian was someone, but we also have a bunch of artists that tried stuff in abstraction and there's still a lot of uncovered ground. Mm. And in the Netherlands, it always felt like, how dare you when there are these masterpieces? And and part of the issue is that the museums in the Netherlands haven't been able to keep up with the art market in the last 50 years. So all you see the works of quality are older and then the newest stuff they have one Damien Hirst and then they have one Peter Halley but mm-hmm. you, you don't see the full story but you could see 12 Mondrians in one museum and 18 different and are they not are they not collecting um, Dutch artists like yeah and then artists? it's not as good as the international stuff and the art goes where money flows and then maybe there are Dutch artists but the good works are bought by bigger museums somewhere else and so it, it yeah it to me Moving to the U.S. was much more encouraging. It felt like, oh, it's okay to make mistakes in the present, and you're not going to be Rembrandt, but you're living in your own time. And I think living in Europe, art history can be kind of a, you know, like a, it can be a, a, yeah. a, a, a the, yeah. if it felt like historically here, just more focus on, on going forward. My fellow Canadian listeners are going to hang me for this, but like I think the opposite might have been true in Canada because there was so little art history because it, there was no R and D department, right? Like, well, the, the actual they were killed. Was indigenous the R and D department history, right? was killed. They were yeah, incredible, they were but That's, yeah, exactly. They, so, exactly. So there was this amazing R and D department. They're like, well, here's some smallpox. Yeah, you're welcome. But then after that, it was because it was an industrial and agricultural kind of landscape, it wasn't very well funded. And then there's one history and I hated it as a student, which was, so there's this one impressionist group yeah, called yeah, the group yeah. of seven. And it's like a bad version and, of uh, what happened in Europe. Yeah, but if, yeah, exactly. So Europeans would probably look at this stuff and be like, what is this trash? Right? Like, and Canadians celebrate it. Um, and it's really like, it belongs on like aprons and tablecloths and things like this. And I don't want to be too critical of it because I actually romantic. There's a romance built into it because it's our landscape. Yeah, and it is um, like people of European descent go, going to, who were trained in, in in a tradition of landscape painting and then being thrown in one of the biggest landscapes in the world. That literally, like the yeah. size of Canada, should not be underestimated. It's a pretty big country. But anyway, it was easy yeah. for me to reject that art history. Is all I'm saying when I started it. And then the the art history that was born after that was literally my professors <laughs> so they're like yeah we uh we're basically we started the artist run culture that's in canada like they literally founded the first galleries and things like that and so it felt really fresh like i could actually 
things make were not contribution. Written, yeah, things what, were not defined yet. But what I but yeah, in retrospect though, that's actually not really the attitude here. It's it's closer to the Netherlands where we don't really keep up um, at the same pace. I well, think. it's it's hard um, to collect at the level of the richest countries, and then you have to find your own tradition. But I think the Netherlands in particular has such a vast archive of incredible paintings. So I've always grown up with this idea of like, you see something new and they're like, yeah, but somebody else did this similar and actually way better. And that might be true, mm -hmm. but I think too much history can just be very discouraging. And then you're just like, eh, what can I do? Let's just uh, I'll, I'll become a lawyer. Well, we're very lucky that we've traveled the world and, and every time you've traveled, I'm sure you've done the same thing. I did. You pop into yeah. the museum, you see what's up, you know, like what they have. And then, you know, you know, you, there are, you know certain cities where there are certain historic works, right? And they only have the one of those. But then the contemporary collections I find interesting because, like you said, they only have one Damien Hirst or whatever. But, like, in a lot of places, you're seeing the exact same Damien Hirst, the same Jeff Koons. And there is this kind of, like, global history yeah. that emerged. That, that, um, that reminds you know, me out of, of an the, interesting thing that uh, the Western model of making unique objects also means, like, Okay, there's about a thousand rich people around the world that can afford this work, and they all want a Richard Serra in some form. Whether it's a mm -hmm. drawing or a full steel structure, they want something of him. And it's fine to do the same thing over and over again, because you're never going to see them all. There's like one in Dubai, there's one in Tokyo, and who cares if it looks the same? Yeah. But then when you get to distributed works and when you get to media art, you can't just make the same work over and over again and sell it a thousand times, because... There's an online database and be like, wait, you made a thousand dot paintings and I can just go through them. Because it's, it's more similar to music, you know, so it, you could listen to the whole body mm -hmm. of work of a musician on Spotify. So you can't just write the same song over and over again. I mean, the exception to this is usually like, you know, earthworks or something where they exist in one specific or any site specific yeah. work, right? Where... I got to see a Goldsworthy, which I had never seen in, in person. I was with Kristen, and she was super excited, but we were at a site-specific uh, location, and Goldsworthy did, like, earthworks that were meant to decay and dissolve, similar to your sand paintings example. But over a longer um, period of time, but they decay? It depends. Like, the pieces I saw, one was, like, a sphere made of mud, but it was protected by, like, a house that he had specially designed as well, so it was going to last a long time. But if the, the sphere normally... Wouldn't he wouldn't have built a house around it? It would just be like in a field, and you're right. Yeah, the period of time could vary depending yeah. on the weather, right? Um, before it dissolved, um, but the work's never meant to be one, seen. Yeah, which I find like a one of the nice things thing. interesting to me is that as much as I've grown up, as much as I've traveled, and you know, I have a history with Brazil, and then I've spent a lot of time in Japan and viewed their art history, and they're both very different points of view, and both more ephemeral than the Western art history, I still tend to want my works to be archival. Like whenever I make something, I, I want it to exist for a long time. And you've chosen mm -hmm. to make performances and that you don't even want them recorded. So, uh, it, like, the, yeah. my websites were coded in Flash first and then Renier helped me to redo them all in HTML5 and I really care about them existing forever. Yeah, I think I had this fantasy of like, I get that. And I do a little bit of both now. But like when I was younger, I especially, I, you know, I romanticized that Chris Burden idea that you can't document the thing. And But I did have this fantasy 
built on like the legacy of one of my teachers that I mentioned earlier, this guy, Colin Campbell. And he died while I was his assistant. And um, he made such an impression. I've told this story many times on the podcast that like the nurses came to the memorial and gave a beautiful speech. But like so many people gave beautiful speeches about him that I was like, wow, like that's an incredible work of art. Like that this person passed on, like it's the oral history thing. They passed on so much like energy and excitement and love to this next to all of these people and i remember but the memorial was that's just like that's not mutually or, exclusive to making works that uh, are archival in or nature archival no and he created a lot of videos that are archived but i don't think anyone even watches the videos like <laughs> it's like i think his greatest work of art was these whether he did perf- you know he performed as a teacher which i don't think many people recognize as a form of art making or or encapsulating history. Um, but I don't know, for me anyway, I, I loved, um, maybe it's not a good example, but it, it, you know, it, the, the, it made, it created this impression on me as a young person that like a legacy doesn't have to be yeah. a fixed yeah. uh, object. It can be an oral tradition or just like creating a feeling or community, like creating community, I think is probably the best way to think about it. Yeah. And, and, um, and, and like for example, I really like the the landscape artist Pete Audolf, who did the High Line, and he, I went to his garden mm-hmm. in the Netherlands. He has his own garden oh. that's basically his lab, and he's crossbreeding all kinds of flowers. And then he he makes drawings in his studio, and then walks into the garden to look at like, okay, this plant would work, this plant would work. You know, it's, it's like his Pantone color book, his garden. Yeah, is he uh, Dutch? Uh, mm. And. So he makes living artworks, you could say, or you could say it's decorative or whatever. I don't think it matters. But yeah, those things will last in documentation and in tradition. And it, it kind of became a school now. Like a lot of people want a garden like that. It's lots of grasses or perennials. and uh, Like zero yeah, spacing, basically. Like using yeah, but it's also fake. Like It, it looks native, but it's actually not, and etc. But he is... He operates like a painter. Like you, you could take a photo from above from the garden, and it looks like a painting. Mm. But it it will never be the same. Like the seasons change, uh, he will pass on, and it will become a tradition. But um, maybe what I'm trying to say is he's kind of in the middle of things being archival because everything's recorded very well, and maybe mm-hmm. yeah. Lands- landscape. Uh, maybe what I'm trying well, to say it, is that it, landscape it, design is an interesting thing because there are clear traditions that have been passed on there are English gardens and French gardens and Japanese gardens etc and everything's recorded even before the, the photo camera but it's also a tradition yeah. same, similar to the sand paintings where you make something and you know it won't last forever yeah I think we're close to where I thought this po- we were going to end up focusing a lot on this podcast but it's good that we haven't but like ultimately the internet really changed history as far the as art making was concerned, in my well, <laughs> no, no, I didn't think we were going to spend time on the blockchain, but I think like having all of history and visual history, especially available to you via like a Google image search, um, that did that did affect art for a period of time in in this century, the century we're living in now, um, and there was that like kind of zombie formalist movement. I'm I'm curious whether you believe that we're still kind of mired. And so zombie formalism, just for our listeners who weren't aware, was this like, I don't know if it was conceptual or even conscious, but like a period of art making where the best ideas f- from a saleable standpoint were repackaged 
um, as paintings what was, and resold. What as was if interesting they were like novel here, I'm the typical Dutch person who says somebody already did it. So zombie formalism happened, and it was basically experiments with material without too much content. It's just like let's burn the canvas, let's spit on the canvas, let's put blood on the canvas. Any process, process-based abstraction. But then I saw the retrospective of uh, Buri, the Italian painter at the Guggenheim, and he had all these phases in his work, and each phase was another abstraction artist or another zombie formalist. <laughs> and it was all from the 60s to the 80s. So he's, he did like burnt charcoal, then he did burnt plastic, then he did overstretching things until the point of breaking, then he did so much paint yeah. on it that it starts to crack. And so all these material experiments basically like let's see what the material can do without me trying to make a composition and that's what zombie formalism was mm -hmm. but that's the example of zombie formalism was very popular in the u.s and people just didn't know this italian painter They're like okay this looks fresh mm -hmm. yeah i think i look at it within a history of also internet art that was really grappling with its own history like we've talked about history of painting a lot in this podcast but then there are like these micro histories and then now the internet art is pretty macro history like it spans 40 50 years and you might argue like it shouldn't be called internet art you know because it transcends those boundaries now and lots of people have argued that you know that's what post-internet is and blah 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 but i think you know it 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 fails to acknowledge the importance of the internet as the primary document of reference from a point in time that is most artists' careers on the planet right now. Yeah, forward. everything's so internet like, art. Now. Almost, like every painter starts with the internet. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that that is irrefutable. And there are very few artists that are practicing today that did that were not influenced. Or yeah, not and, been influenced. and that it's I'd not a part that of the process. Almost impossible. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, you don't have to travel to Tokyo. Now, I do believe you get something different when you see something Yeah, you got to taste the food. And, but, but then, of course, you also get something different if you don't visit in person. You get the flat. I, I love this history. work. You get that yeah, kind of fifth Table element, Roback yeah. made these 3D renderings of Japanese convenience stores. Like these 24-7 uh, mm -hmm. stores with food and... Uh, yeah. So common and there, it, yeah. It, it was incredible how much he captured the feeling of being there and he had never been in Japan. So I thought that was interesting. Interesting. Yeah, that is, yeah. That is interesting. Yeah, and so, so, so much is like um, simulacra. Like it's not the actual thing. It's like what I looked at, what I researched yeah. on the internet. And then it's the interesting, thing. this idea of um, living in a mediated world and then sort of being a landscape painter in a mediated world so where you're not going to the actual landscape, but you're getting it through this distributed uh, distributed technological yeah, lens I mean, like, and that's how you how you paint in, in. but what, what's crazy about that is like i mean obviously post um you know richter and other people who were like looking at photos instead of um the actual landscape light or whatever um but the original impressionists that we were talking about, like even in Canada, right? It was all about the light and being in, en plein air, yeah. right? Like in the actual yeah. nature. I do think you could go um, back in art history and look at moments and see like, what was the most fun life? What was the... And I, I am jealous of people who can combine nature time and work time. That seems a really nice life setup. Because to me, like mm, going hiking, like, like it's fun a couple of times, but after a while you're like, 
Okay, but imagine that it's part of your work process. Yeah. Well, yeah, because it's the imagine that, of, that, of that observing. whatever I think your job is, that instead of being on Zoom, they said, okay, we want you to spend at least five hours a day hiking and turning off your phone. Yeah. That'd be a cool job. Sit here and watch watch this tree yeah. change color over the course I, of the day. I, I wonder how many people actually would enjoy it. Yeah. I did just um, watch this film. I don't know if you'd like it. It's called The Sound of Metal. Have I saw the trailer, it? but I, I'm not so into metal films that are not really... Uh, no. It's not about yeah, heavy yeah, metal exactly. at all. Spoiler alert. <laughs> I watched it thinking, like, no, Raphael no, no, will no. be proud of me. And then it, it's really about this guy that loses yeah. his hearing, um, who was a heavy metal drummer. And then he, like, you know, get, has to attune himself to the deaf community. And it actually ends up being pretty... Either you could either think it's extremely cheesy or extremely poetic, but he you know eventually has to come to terms with the fact that because he can't hear it doesn't mean that he can't experience. In fact, it might mean that he can experience things. You know, in, and then, in then they try to detail. convey that in the cinematic. It's kind of cliche, but yeah. it's done well. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, then they yeah funnel that through my uh, television <laughs> set and, <laughs> and headphones, whatever. Um, but yeah, the idea of sitting and observing something for a day sounds it sounds lovely in a way, but I don't know. I don't think very many people would have the patience it? for it. As an assignment? Well, we always do the field recordings for that reason. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, what happened to those? People stopped sending them. I've thought about this a lot because in Canada, um, the idea of a cottage is very Yeah, you guys popular. have so much like, land. So going... Yeah, but it's getting expensive. Um, but regardless, it's still part of the tradition is to go. It, we have these large public parks, too, so you can a lot of people rent campgrounds. And it's funny, they, you know, people will go back to the same campground over and over again. Obviously, they go back to the same cottage for a lifetime. But you develop a different relationship with a place over a period of time that is a lifetime. And um, Yeah, like at first you're like yeah, a, I mean, a even, happy child playing in the sand. Then you become a bored teenager, yeah. and you're like, Ugh, I hate it here. <laughs> and then you're like 30, and you have yeah, kids of your I, own, and you're like, let's go back. This is fun. But I was just up a couple of weeks ago, and it's actually more than that. Like, you actually, re- I recognized, like, the trees that had come and gone, right? Like, and which which trees were now growing, and oh, my God, this tree died that used to be such oh, man, a big this is part your of my new life work. and the way I grounded myself This should be you, like, standing in the landscape, describing it, and be like... <laughs> Famous new media artist, back to nature. Let me guide you. Let me tell you about you could Mr. be the, the real yeah, life yeah. Uh, Bob Ross. Like, look, there's a happy little bird and there's a happy little tree. I did love this story of like um, one indigenous artist was uh, telling uh, a story about how they told their story and history in the landscape, and you know that um, songs would be low, you know, specific to a site or a place. So that and even the so the pitch mm. of the of the song would follow the the height level of the landscape, like as they turned around, in, like dancing, like a record player fixed in place. I found like that's so poetic. Yeah. Though I mean, it's kind of, yeah. The, I, I'm the, getting I'm verging no, into no, cheesy territory, but it, I did. There's also uh, this this story of uh, Native Americans. I don't know which part of the Americas, but that they told the Westerners like, "You have a watch, but we have time." And it, it's mm. it, interesting. I, yeah. I'm I'm suspicious of thinking that other cultures, other than Western, are always superior in every way. But 
that does seem chill. Like, you don't have a watch, therefore you have time. Well, I just think it's relevant because we've been talking about preserving yeah. history. And it's like, yeah, you can preserve 100 years of history. Or how about you preserve millennia <laughs> and that the history yeah. you're preserving and how about preserving is of uh, is, is the planet yeah. is keeping you in your head instead of living uh, and observing in, in real time mm-hmm. yeah yeah I mean that's what that sound of uh, metal movies about spoiler alert is like finding stillness um, which we often talk about on the podcast but I think that in relationship to this question about history stillness is an interesting thought right um, and it's the absence of something. Yeah. The space, the space between the notes. <laughs> Anti-history. Well, before this podcast, I was watching a, a documentary on Netflix about black holes and how they were like these physicists. It was funny. Like they were like, they had written like hundreds of page long equations to try and figure out like the problem with the black hole is as far as they were concerned was not that the black hole um, contained nothing was that they couldn't ascribe information to the black hole. And so that made all information potentially <laughs> meaningless. <laughs> like, and so they wanted to be able to read data out of the black hole. And so these, like these group of scientists, which included uh, Stephen Hawking, who died during the f- making of the film, were like, we figured out like that there, we actually can detect like the data of an, um, an object going into a black hole, like ha- like passing through hair, uh, like like wind passing through your hair, or like getting your hair hit, and we can if we can detect the movement of those hairs, then we can get the data back out. Mm. Like, and they were so obsessed with. I like, like that. There's these, these making black something hole wind sounds behind you at the moment you were saying this. <laughs> I think they were motorcycles <laughs> yeah. or something, but it sounded sort of eerie. But I was just thinking it's like a human perversion oh, yeah, to try sure. and like they wanted to ascribe history well, to the black hole. Well, you're talking a like, lot about like, humans wanting really to important. bring a, a logical story to something that doesn't exist. So that you want to say, well, there was there was nothing, and then there was the Big Bang, and people want an explanation. Yeah, yeah and their anxiety was that it might actually all be but, untangled, like because the anti- antith- antithesis yeah, was. But you're making a good point that. I think for artists, art history is great to pick things from, but it's also a little bit meaningless in the present time, and you should be free to make what you want. But for the for it, the audience, the there are so many artists, and for them to be able to make any heads or tails, they need some guidance. And I always compare it to the night sky, and there's billions and billions of stars, so you can't make sense of it, but then there are groups. And then you can say, that's the Big Dipper, and the, I don't know all the other names, but there are these constellations that help you navigate. And that's kind of what art yeah. history is. is that there's, there's a billion people that did visual research of some kind, but we preserved certain ones, so just to make some sense of it, because otherwise studying history would mean like, okay, go through every manual gesture that every yeah. human has ever created but I think that that's why it's important to know that that history is relatively random. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you know, like absolutely the way it's been preserved. Yeah, there, like a there, lot, there's no a justice. Lot a, a lot of people, th- when they're making work, they think like, oh, one day people will understand because the good work will surface. But uh, yeah, there's, yeah, there's this <laughs> Ken Casey wrote this thing like the cream always rises. That's that's the saying. Like the good stuff floats and and will be preserved. But he says turds also float. Yeah, yeah, 
that's a very poetic. <laughs> this is that that sink into your coffee creamer, yeah. <laughs> so if you see a turd in your coffee, watch out. Um, no, but I think that's the, that's exactly no. And, the point, and it, right? it, to like, me, food so, is always a, a good way to understand things. Like, I think throughout history, we've preserved the best recipes, but there's also a lot of crap that surfaced that is uh, just commercially successful. And uh, I think no one thinks Dunkin' Donut has the best donuts, but they're the best at distribution. So that's why they'll be remembered. Yeah. It doesn't mean that there, there's a specialist somewhere that makes way better donuts, but, you know, think of donuts, it's, it's Dunkin' Donuts. Yeah. yeah. Well, in this movie, actually, they were trying to visualize a black hole for the first time. and the, the But they have no camera to do this, so they, like, invented well, the this way global to visualize camera the, made up of, come like... Come to your apartment and take your TV. Well, no, what they did, they did is that they... So they have all this data. They have, like, petadites bytes of data. And then... But they, like... We have nothing to compare the data to to know that the visualization is correct. So what they did is kind of interesting... They created four teams of people who took the data and tried to visualize it according to their own logic. And then the idea was that if all four teams presented the same image, it was ground. It was probably truthful, which I found so a very interesting logic proof. What was the result? Well, it's, I think you've all seen it, right? Yeah. Like it's a ring <laughs> that matches the theoretical models that preceded it, but it it like completely um, missed the point that like just because you put four different teams in a room doesn't mean, and that they arrive at the same logic doesn't mean that they have any greater knowledge of what real of but ground truth I, because they're all they all, they all have had, biased. If I had to lives, visualize yeah. a black hole, I would have an exhibition room space and have twenty people on the laptop with the really noise canceling headphones. All shouting at each other through Zoom. That that would be the black hole. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? <laughs> and this is why you're not yeah. a performance artist. I'm just <laughs> that would be like a crassly funny yeah. performance. <laughs> you're breaking up. You're breaking up. Wait. Can you hear me now? Can you put it on Slack? Okay. That's the soundtrack you're hearing during the mm. day. We all know that, but I, I know I am. But the Zoom is, is a black hole emotionally. It sucks. Yeah, the you life don't know what's inside. You. That's my point. The information is transcoded, or like you're only. Yeah, but it, doesn't it suck it the life out. out of you and any joy? Like, yeah. yeah, it's horrible. It really is, and I would, I should be a proponent of it because I've. You're the new studied, media performer. I've you love the camera. My whole life, yeah. Yeah, I wear filter. I for the first few months I was like, "Wow, this is awesome! I can wear filters to work. This is the future of fashion." And I still do filters sometimes, but no one else does. <laughs> so I feel like it's, it's not. Hey the guys, future. this is super cool. This is the future. Yeah, people are like, no, my fan gets too hot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, well, yeah, a great question. I hope this uh, um, answer was somewhat helpful because uh, I'm not sure. I, I yeah I don't know but also we um, we really savored that question it's well, our you last know, maybe, question maybe someone will the, listen to this episode in 400 years so it'll be part of history oh yeah SoundCloud will be around I'm sure well we have it on multiple platforms maybe one of them I will think survive. so and if, so, if someone wants a full backup it, of everything let me know well we could record it onto some sort of a Rosetta Stone like um, a CD a laser disc set put it in 
<laughs> let's just throw it on yeah. a CD-ROM, you know, like a, or a CDIW. Yeah, those apparently, speaking of history, like last like five years, right? 10 max. Yeah. So not to scare anyone, Blockchain, but if you bro. have any data on CD, it's gone. Yeah, the, oh, yeah. IPFS, International Interplanetary, or Interplanetary yeah. file, system, last file System. Yeah, I love that name. Best name <laughs> brand ever in the yeah. internet. Well, thank <laughs> you for the question, and I uh, hope it helps somewhat. Yeah, thanks a lot. If not, we had a good time. We yeah. did, it was a thank cool you. question. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye.